1: Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today, we're going to be studying the Pali Canon in English on Saturdays at 9 p.m. Thai time. Each week, we study the Pali Canon in English using the Words of the Buddha book series, where in Volumes 2 through 13, we study these all throughout the world, taking 10 chapters a week, and then we come together like this in order to discuss the chapters, helping you to learn and understand what the Buddha was teaching so that you can then reflect on those teachings and practice them in your daily life to see the results as the mind moves closer and closer to this enlightened mental state. This week we're in volume 3 chapters 51 through chapter 60. After we meditate we're going to be reading each of those chapters. I'll be sharing the teachings with you on each of those chapters and then open up to any questions that you might have if you've been joining us regularly then you may have been actually reading these chapters prior to class which means you'll get a lot more benefit out of the class itself but if you're joining us for the first time and you haven't read these chapters it's okay because we're going to read them in class today you're welcome to join us and you'll be able to study right along with us and then in the future you can actually download the book from our website dailywisdom.com click on the button for free books and you'll see the volumes listed there because next week we're gonna be in chapter 61 through 70 and you can actually read prior to class and gain a lot more insight and a lot more value from the class itself. We start each of these classes with a brief meditation to help prepare the mind and get it ready for the class because if you just enter into a learning situation with the Buddhist teachings, you'll be able to learn But the amount of information that you retain from the learning experience will increase when you've actually done some meditation beforehand. So if you're meditating two or three times a day, which is what a typical practitioner will do in order to build up to enlightenment, this is kind of like a little top up just to kind of prepare the mind a bit for 10, 15, 20 minutes or so prior to actually studying so that you can clear out any clutter that might have collected in the mind, creating some more clarity, and then the mind can retain the teachings more readily. And then you can reflect on those teachings and you can practice them in daily life because the mind is retaining the understanding that it gained through the class itself. So I'd like to welcome all of you to today's class and invite you to join for meditation and even stick around for the discussion and learning of chapters 51 through 60. I tend to not give very much guidance in meditation in this class. So go ahead and take a position of meditation, typically either seated, standing or walking, and go ahead and start making the body comfortable. Getting the lower body, the hands and arms into position. Keep that upper body nice and erect. Keeping the mind attentive and alert with the eyes closed. And just start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Some nice, gradual, natural breaths. Breathing in. In out. Your breath isn't gonna necessarily match up to the guidance that I'm sharing, but just remember to breathe in through the nose and out through the nose. Focus the mind on the breath, the sound of the breath or sensation of air moving into the nose. This is the present moment. Breathing in and out. I'm going to do some chanting to kind of ease us into meditation. Then I'll leave you on your own to do the work, training the mind to focus on the breath. Anytime the mind isn't on the breath, cut that off. Let it go and come back to the breath.
2: Ara hung some hoto pacoa. Poor tongue, Sawaka to Makuatamu Damang Namasami Supati Pano Sang ho sang naming some put us ARAH TO SAMH SABHU TASHA ITI BISO MAHA CHA RENANG SAMUNO saka to ro kawitu anuttero bhurisā damasatī bhūto pakavatī hara <laughs> hip bhutasa Napmore Hassa Paco Ato Ara caranang sahmuro sakator kawito anuwateropuri
1: okay if you guys would like to make your way out of meditation you can go ahead and switch over to the chapters that we're going to be studying this week which are chapters 51 through 60 and we have our moderators Basam, Manoa, and Nick who are helping so as we go through the chapters We'll have a student read each chapter, then I'll teach any, share any information that I'd like to share about the particular chapter, and then open up to any questions. And the way that you ask questions is put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Our moderators will see that and then ask your question during the class. Or if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions that way. And keep in mind, if you are reading these chapters, there's a reference where you can see the original source of where this particular chapter came from, because most of these chapters, the Buddha was talking before and after this. So you can go back and see that if you would like using the reference. And you can see the explanations of where I'm providing commentary and explanations of what I feel the Buddha is teaching in each individual aspect of the chapters that were studying. So if you read these either before or after, or before and after, you're going to be able to sit with them, read the content, look at the references perhaps, if you need to go back and look at the other aspects of this particular teaching the Buddha sharing, and look at the explanations that I'm sharing. Our class time is a time to come together, discuss, and kind of flesh out any questions or detailed explanation that you might be needing so that you can deeply learn reflect and then practice in order to improve your life practice making your way to this enlightened mental state where the mind is peaceful calm serene and content with joy so i'll turn things over to Basam, Manal, and nick so that you guys can ask any questions that you have and lead through the class with the moderators hello teacher
3: our first volunteer is miranda for chapter 51
1: perfect
4: Leading to hell, to the animal realm, and to the realm of afflicted spirits. Monks, the destruction of life, repeatedly pursued, developed, and cultivated, leads to hell, to the animal realm, and to the realm of afflicted spirits. For one reborn as a human being, the destruction of life at minimum leads to a short lifespan. Taking what is not given, repeatedly pursued, developed, and cultivated, leads to hell, to the animal realm, and to the realm of afflicted spirits. For one reborn as a human being, taking what is not given, at minimum, leads to loss of wealth. Sexual misconduct, repeatedly pursued, developed, and cultivated, leads to hell, to the animal realm, and to the realm of afflicted spirits. For one reborn as a human being, sexual misconduct, at minimum, leads to hostility and competition. False speech, repeatedly pursued, developed, and cultivated, leads to hell, to the animal realm, and to the realm of afflicted spirits. For one reborn as a human being, false speech at minimum leads to false accusations. Argumentative speech repeatedly pursued, developed, and cultivated leads to hell, to the animal realm, and to the realm of afflicted spirits. For one reborn as a human being, argumentative speech at minimum leads to being separated from one's friends. Harsh speech, repeatedly pursued, developed, and cultivated, leads to hell, to the animal realm, and to the realm of afflicted spirits. For one reborn as a human being, harsh speech at minimum leads to hearing disagreeable things. Idle chatter, repeatedly pursued, developed, and cultivated, leads to hell, to the animal realm, and to the realm of afflicted spirits. For one reborn as a human being, idle chatter at minimum leads to others distrusting one's words drinking liquor and wine ingestion of substances that cause cause heedlessness repeatedly pursued developed and cultivated leads to hell to the animal realm and to the realm of afflicted spirits for one reborn as a human being drinking liquor and wine ingestion of substances that cause cause heedlessness at minimum leads to madness
1: all right thank you miranda this is a rare teaching in terms of how the Buddha often taught. He taught various teachings about how to develop the life practice and developing our wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline. This particular teaching relates mostly to the five precepts. And oftentimes he used to share the teachings, but very rarely did he share kind of the ramifications of not practicing the teachings. And this is a situation of him describing the consequences or the effects. Because remember, everything that he's teaching is exposing us to these natural laws of existence, essentially the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect, or action and result. So here he's showing the cause and he's showing the effect as well. So rather than just believing what you're seeing here, this is where it's important to learn to reflect, and then practice to see the truth for yourself. So what the Buddha shares in the five precepts, and he's sharing here, is that we shouldn't destroy life. We shouldn't kill living beings. And when he talks in the five precepts, he talks about living compassionately for the welfare of all living beings. And he just says what the teaching is. But here, he's sharing with us the effects, that if we do destroy life, and we continue to do that repeatedly, it leads to rebirth in hell, animal realm, or afflicted spirits. But if we are reborn into the human realm, then at minimum, it leads to a shorter lifespan. And this can help you if you observe certain beings in the world that die really early. This can be based on their actions in this life and or previous lives. And the Buddha is explaining for each one of these precepts of what at minimum does it lead to in the human realm? So one that you might be able to look at and kind of reflect on most closely is something like drinking liquor and wine, ingesting substances that cause heedlessness. If you've ever done that, or you've been around people who do do that, then ask yourself, don't just learn and believe, but reflect on it. Ask yourself when you were doing those things, or as you are doing those things now, or as you observe people doing those things now, does it lead to wholesome results? Or does it lead to what the Buddha is saying here? At minimum, it leads to madness. So the Buddhist teachings are sharing the truth, but you need to be able to see that truth because by seeing that truth, then you gain wisdom. And this wisdom then informs your decisions and you're able to make wiser and wiser decisions in your life. Whereas if we kept drinking alcohol or ingesting substances that cause heedlessness, then it's at minimum going to lead to madness in this life. But also, if we happen to be reborn, it can potentially lead to rebirth in these other realms. And it's always important to note that when the Buddha is talking about rebirth, and we're going to be having a lot of topics and chapters like that today, That he's not trying to guilt shame or fear anybody into learning and practicing his teachings he's just sharing what the truth is the ultimate goal of his teachings is for beings to attain enlightenment where there's no longer any rebirth in any of these realms whatsoever but people obviously are going to have questions during his lifetime you know what happens if we do continue to kill or steal or have sexual misconduct Or speak in these certain ways or ingest substances that cause heedlessness. So the way that the Buddha used to teach is he would wait for people to ask questions and then he would have these discourses and he would share discourses with people who are learning really close to him. He might proactively share things with them in order to help them see some of the challenges that they're facing and then allow them to improve their practice. But this is a very unique teaching where he's actually sharing the consequences or the results or the effects of not practicing the teachings so this is really important to take note of, but again remember to learn, reflect, and practice so you can reflect on each one of these things and when you're looking at destruction of life in short lifespan, you know think about people who have been world leaders or even soldiers. We're not talking about just people who are legally, based on humanity's laws or human laws that are legally killing, like people like soldiers, for example, they have the legal justification from their government to go into war and kill. But the laws that we create in societal laws are very minimal compared to this natural law of gamma. This natural law of gamma is a much higher natural law. It's a natural law. It's a much higher level of practice than what we see in the laws of society that we've created as human beings. So when you see destruction of life, don't just think someone who's a serial murderer and some of these other things. You can also think of people who go into war at 18, 20, 25 years old, and they're sent off and they choose to go kill. Does that lead to a shorter lifespan? Well, of course, because If you kill, then oftentimes you are going to be killed as well. So you can reflect on these and be sure that you see the truth and look for examples. That's that reflection that you're doing, is looking for examples to either prove or disprove the Buddhist teachings. And that will help you to get to the wisdom. And then it will incentivize you to clean up your practice. And practice not killing, not stealing, not having sexual misconduct, not speaking in any of these ways with false speech, argumentative speech, harsh speech, or idle chatter, and then also not ingesting substances that cause heedlessness. Because as you do, this will significantly improve the results of your decisions. By not choosing not to do these things, you will then significantly reduce any unwholesome results because you're not causing harm through cleaning up your practice to be able to practice the five precepts. So let's see what questions you guys have on this chapter.
3: Immanuel has a question, so let's go to
5: her. If you take it? it's um, easier uh, to see the, this point uh, that the Buddha is making about the destruction of uh, life and examples which you give of soldier, soldiers or uh, world leaders, who designate themselves to take other human lives um, but the mind's going towards understanding something at a more uh, micro level um, with just um, insect life and um, you know bird life or any other uh, creature that um, we coexist with today uh, i ran across this uh, bulletin, which is shared with a lot of environmental groups in the area that I live in about a particular type of insect, which is an invasive insect. It's deemed as invasive. So it, it is um, growing in such high population that um, it is known to be devastating some of the plant life, which is essential to the ecosystem. So this banner is, um, is pretty, is advising people to kill these insect insects on site and just repeatedly stomp on them and kill them and there's people in the community who have done uh, a lot of taking great measure to um, eradicate them whenever they see them in large large numbers and these insects come into my home and i just kind of usher them outside the home I i wanted to understand though the the line between understanding about the destruction of life. And surely this is just in reference to insect life and um, other beings which are, um, we coexist with um, flies and insects. What is your thoughts about the quality of um, these insects being deemed as invasive and the long-term effects which have been proven, which they do cause devastation in, in our environment?
1: This is mentioned in this same volume, in chapter 44, when I talk about the five precepts. I expanded beyond what I talked about in volume one about the five precepts, where I talk about insect infestation. And it's important when you see the Buddhist teachings on the destruction of life, you'll notice that he doesn't say, preserve all life at all costs, right? And he talks about living compassionately, trembling for the welfare of all living beings. And what we need to understand is that this natural law of gamma is here and present all the time. If beings are causing harm, then harm is going to come to them. So in this case of things like certain insects that are invasive and that are causing massive amounts of harm, this is why their lifespan becomes shortened. And this is why people are looking to kill them. And that's also why being in the animal realm, it's very difficult to move beyond that. It's like being stuck in a prison because you're being born into all these different animal existences where there is harm being caused. So that's why people are interested in killing them because they're causing harm and harm is thus coming to them. This is why snakes have very short lifespans because they go around and kill. This is why lions and tigers have very short lifespans. I think a a lion's lifespan is somewhere between 8 to 12 years because they go around killing. So this natural law of gamma, it doesn't just affect humans, it affects all beings. It doesn't just affect beings who understand the natural law of gamma. It's always there at play at all times. So the reason why people are interested in killing those invasive species is because they're doing damage. And if you choose to kill them, that's your choice, and that's a choice that, that you're making. Whether you choose to, to kill an invasive species or not is up to you. Remember the Buddhist teaching to live compassionately, trembling for the welfare of all living beings. He's not saying preserve all life at all costs. So if our house, for example, was infested by insect that was invasive and it actually was at one point it, it was uh, there were some termites that we had a, a lot of termites here around the house we looked for different options to eradicate this through methods that don't harm them that don't kill the termites you know like different herbs and things like this but ultimately what it came to is my wife ended up contacting a company that went around and you know discovered a way to rid these insects of our home so there's situations where you're going to need to potentially kill but if you've done the work ahead of time in order to try to live compassionately for these living beings and find a way to eradicate them without killing then that's fulfilling that precept because that gamma that they're being killed because they're causing harm therefore harm is coming to them so that's what I would share with that. And if you have any follow-up questions on that, just let me know.
5: Yeah, I, I have reviewed the teaching in the book and um, I investigated that for myself um, several months ago. And um, this, this education part, which the community is being educated on, um, I know for myself, at least, that I cannot take the life of anything else, another mm-hmm. being. Um, and um, my investigation at this point is sort of pointing to, is it my ignorance in, um, in avoiding killing them? <laughs> I mean, this is, this is gonna sound funny, but um, I, I am not going to kill them. I know that I will not be killing them. And therefore by the act of not, not killing them and being that example for my family, they might not kill these insects as well which may uh, inevitably promote the existence of these insects and um, perhaps leading leading to some devastation of some sort now uh, that is ignorance in some ways it is ignorance so i'm conflicted with following the wisdom behind the teaching and then at the same time understanding that there's a level of ignorance in this because um, had this been an invasive species in, within my home such that it is disturbing the life and livelihood that we have every day, I may need to reanalyze that at that point, and then, I, then I'll probably be even more conflicted. But at this point in time, uh, with the teaching that I'm understanding, um, there doesn't seem to be a clear understanding at this point.
0: This is where
1: each individual situation is different, and you have to reside in the present moment, look at what's happening, and then make a decision in the present moment. So like in our situation with the termites here, I wasn't involved in that decision whatsoever. I mentioned to my wife, hey, if there's you know kind of a way to get rid of them without killing them, that would be best. But she tends to handle all those kind of things because we're living in Thailand, and she needs to communicate with the Thai people to have somebody come and look at these kind of things. Where even if there's ants running around in our house, I will go get a broom and kind of sweep them up and put them outside. But then after I do so, if I see an area that the ants have been, I can proactively spray a little bit of spray and it will keep them out of that area. So like sometimes there's like little holes in our tiles that they will come through so I can sweep it up get them out of the way and then just spray a little bit of spray, which isn't killing any specific ant, but it's just kind of a deterrent for them because when they smell that spray, they won't come around. Or sometimes there might be some ants that come around our trash cans. So I will change the trash bag, spray a little bit of spray inside the trash can because they're not in there anymore. And then it kind of is a deterrent for them to come. So I agree with you that I wouldn't go around killing any beings. I don't kill any beings, but there may be one person in your household that is kind of not where you are and they're capable of making that decision and you just leave it to them. This is one of the benefits of living with multiple people. So each decision is gonna be unique. You're gonna have to look at each decision at that moment and then see who's prepared to maybe make a decision if there's a need to destroy life. And knowing that you're at a point where you wouldn't destroy life, then, that's your decision and you know that and you walk forward with that decision and there's no conflict for you if you know that you're not going to destroy life and you're going to live compassionately for all living beings so does that help you uh, manal yeah
5: i'm gonna try to stay in the moment um to answer your question because um now at this point since we're in the conversation. If there was someone else in the home who had to then make a decision, then they would be accumulating um unwholesome gamma for the decision to you know use any means to make do away with any infestation inside the home so i would I would probably be thinking about that at that point
1: right, but remember that the unwholesome gamma is the cause and effect it's not a mystical magical thing, so in that moment, if that person understands that they have lived compassionately, they're looking for other solutions, it didn't come about. And they understand the cause and effect here that these insects are causing harm. And if we allow this to continue, then it's going to cause harm to us. And that's not living with loving kindness and compassion for all living beings, that we allow these insects to eat our home and then we're going to be out of a home in a matter of two or three years. So a being can make a decision, potentially, to kill other beings. Maybe they're in the first stage or the second stage of enlightenment. They're not going to magically have this shorter lifespan. Because notice what the Buddha is saying here, repeatedly pursued, developed, and cultivated right? Someone who just once every five years has to make a decision to maybe eradicate an insect infestation isn't repeatedly pursuing the destruction of life. They're not pursuing destruction of life at all. It just so happens that they found themselves in a situation where they need to look at how can I eradicate this infestation without causing harm after they've done their due diligence, realizing that they can't make a decision that's going to preserve life. Therefore, there needs to be this decision to eradicate the infestation. So as long as they're living compassionately and they're not doing it hatefully and with ill will, there's not going to be this, you know, magical, mystical thing that, you know, causes them problems. It's more about if somebody was living with hatred, anger, and ill will throughout their life, that's what's leading to the shorter lifespan. It's not this magical punishment that's being dished out by some entity. It's that by living with anger, hatred, and ill will, and you live that way, destroying life continuously, it's going to weigh on the physical systems of the body. Therefore, it's going to lead to a shorter lifespan. That's the cause and effect. Okay.
5: Uh, I, I think that point about repeat per, pursue, pursuing it repeatedly um, and understanding the... Um, the teaching and um, you know developing the practice over your life is important versus um, you know making a decision and then um, you know thinking that there's uh, unwholesome karma coming your way. Um, I, I understand that point you made today. Thank you.
1: Yeah, you're welcome. So, like for example, I used to work on a farm when I was 17, 18 years old and we had to chase after goats, we had to chase after sheep, we had to tie them up, we had to kill them, we had to butcher them. This is repeatedly pursuing the destruction of life. And there was a wrong livelihood there, basing my livelihood. And because of that, it produced fear, it produced discontentedness. Also, the work environment that we were in was very hostile. There was oftentimes fights amongst the workers. So that was all the gamma that I was dealing with as a result of Repeatedly pursuing the destruction of life. But someone who's living in a home, living peacefully, following all these teachings, and some infestation happens in your home, you're not repeatedly pursuing that. That's something that's happening. And now you have to choose how do I respond to this? And there's wise ways to do that by first looking at a compassionate way to rid the home of these insects. If that's successful, great, outstanding. But if not, it may come to a decision that someone in the household is going to need to make. But that's not going to be done out of anger, hatred, and ill will. There's already been some compassion that's been exercised. And that's why it's not going to have some magical consequence of a shortened lifespan just because of that one situation. Thank
2: you. You're welcome. No
1: more questions? Okay. Great discussion, guys. Chapter 52
3: yes uh, the next volunteer is
5: Madonna. we appear in a happy destination but here student some man or woman abandoning the killing of living beings abstains from killing living beings with rod and weapon laid aside gentle and kindly he resides compassionate to all living beings because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body after death he appears in a happy destination even in the heavenly world but if on the dissolution of the body after death he does not reappear in a happy destination in the heavenly world but instead comes back to the human state then wherever he is reborn he is long-lived but here student some man or woman is not given to injuring beings with the hand with a clod with a stick or with a knife because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination in the heavenly world. But if instead he comes back to the human state when wherever he is reborn, he is healthy. But here, students, a man or woman gives food, drink, clothing, carriages, garlands, scents, ointments, beds, dwelling, and lamps to ascetics of Brahmins. Because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body, after death, he reappears in a happy destination In the heavenly world but if instead he comes back to the human state then wherever he is reborn he is wealthy but here student some man or woman is not of an angry or irritable character even when criticized a little he is not offended does not become angry hostile resentful and does not display anger hate and bitterness because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body After death, he reappears in a happy destination in the heavenly world. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is beautiful. But here, students, a man or woman is not jealous, one who does not become jealous, resentful, and feel bitter about the gains, honor, respect, gratitude, salutations, and venerations received by others. Because of performing and undertaking such action, on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination in the heavenly world. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is influential. But here, students, a man or woman is not stubborn and arrogant. He pays homage respect to one who should receive homage respect, rises up for one in whose presence he should rise up Offers a seat to one who deserves a seat, makes way for one for whom he should make way, and honors, respects, appreciates, and venerates one who should be honored, respected, appreciated, and venerated. Because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination in the heavenly world. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is high born. But here, students, a student, so man or woman visits an ascetic or Brahmin and asks, Venerable sir, what is wholesome? What kind of action will lead to my welfare and peacefulness for a long time? Because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body, after death, he reappears in a happy destination in the heavenly world. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is wise.
1: Okay, thank you, Manal. So, this is a really interesting chapter in contrast to the one that we just talked about, where the Buddha was talking about the negative effects of doing certain things. Here, he's talking about the positive effects of practicing in a certain way. Now, some people may look at a chapter like this, and depending on what your conditioning is from your past experiences studying in various places, various traditions. We oftentimes get in the conditioned mind of thinking that somehow a teacher is kind of dangling a carrot and saying, hey, do these things so that you can get to this happy destination, a heavenly world. But remember, the goal of the Buddhist teachings is to attain enlightenment, to not be reborn, to not be reborn to heaven. So these same things that the Buddha is talking about that leads to rebirth and a heavenly world, they actually are what leads to enlightenment as well. So that's the way I suggest that you read these kind of chapters when you see them, because the Buddha is not trying to dangle a carrot and try to incentivize people to be reborn in a heavenly world. He's trying to share teachings that will help you attain enlightenment in this very life. So where he talks about abandoning, killing of living beings, if you do that in this life, yes, it does lead to a better rebirth in your next rebirth, but it also leads to enlightenment in this life as well. Just like not injuring living beings, just like making offerings of food, drink, clothing, carriages, garlands, scents, ointments, beds, dwellings, and lamps to teachers, aesthetics, and brahmins, people who are sharing these teachings into the world. It leads to a happier destination to the heavenly world in your next rebirth, but that also is what leads to enlightenment in this life too, because if you're making offerings to people like this, it's going to bring you close to those people who are practicing the teachings closely and who are sharing the teachings into the world, which means you're going to have the opportunity to learn and practice and improve your life in this life. And if you need to be reborn, then it's going to result in a better rebirth. Same thing. You should read this as, you know, practicing where you're not angry, you're not irritable, you don't criticize, uh, or when you're criticized, that you don't become offended, that you don't become hostile or angry or resentful, that you don't push off, you know, when somebody shares something with you that can help you for your life, that you don't just push it off and push it away and reject it, but that you look at it and maybe even ask the person questions. Like, why do you think that I need to improve that? Or why do you think that's a craving? Or why do you feel that that's anger? Or why do you feel that's ignorance? Or why do you feel that's the arrogance or conceit that's coming through? Rather than have this bitterness or this rejecting of what somebody's saying, particularly your teacher, then instead turn it into questions and ask questions of that person, which is essentially what the Buddha gets to towards the end. Same thing here when you eliminate jealousy, which is... Practicing sympathetic joy from the brahma Viharas, He talks about here that, you know, when we don't have jealousy, essentially when we're practicing sympathetic joy, it leads to this better rebirth. But it also leads to enlightenment in this life too. That's why you would be interested to practice it. Same thing with stubbornness or arrogance, right? And then, of course, the last one, he oftentimes will put one of the more significant ones or the most significant one at the end of the teaching, where he says, okay, if you sit down with aesthetics or Brahmin teachers who are sharing these teachings and ask them questions, what is wholesome? What will lead to my welfare and peacefulness? Asking all these various questions. It will lead to being wise in a future life, but it's also going to lead to being wise in this life too, which actually leads to enlightenment. So that's what you should really be interested in, is practicing these teachings so that it leads to enlightenment in this life. While it does lead to a better rebirth in a future life, it will also lead to a better and more peaceful existence in this life. That's what you're really looking to achieve. So let's see what questions you guys have on this chapter.
3: No question for this chapter.
1: All right, let's move to the next one. Chapter 53.
3: Yes. Eight worldly conditions. Gain and loss. Shame and fame. Blame and praise pleasure and pain, these conditions that people meet are impermanent, transient, and subject to change. A wise and mindful person knows them and sees that they are subject to change. Desirable conditions do not excite his mind, nor is he saddened by undesirable conditions.
1: All right. Thanks, Possum. So these eight worldly conditions that the Buddha talks about, some of them are agreeable or desirable. Some of them are undesirable. And what can happen is if a being experiences the desirable experiences or desirable situations or desirable conditions, a mind that is not disciplined, that doesn't have wisdom, is going to take excitement in those desirable things, which is going to experience those pleasant feelings, and the mind's going to be discontent. And if a being experiences the undesirable conditions or undesirable situations, then the mind can be saddened experiencing those painful feelings. So what the Buddha is saying here is a wise and mindful person, someone who has awareness of their mind, mindfulness, a person who has wisdom, understands that these eight worldly conditions are all impermanent, so it doesn't make sense to hold on or cling or crave any of them because it's only going to lead to discontentedness. I created this chart in this particular chapter to kind of line them up so that you could be clear on what are the desirable and undesirable conditions or situations, and you're not interested in holding on or craving or welcoming any of these things you will experience through becoming more and more enlightened. You will experience gain. You may experience fame at some point. Not necessarily all enlightened beings are going to experience fame, but maybe some will. You will experience praise. You will experience certain pleasures. But the Buddha is saying, don't allow the mind to excite in that because that's going to be pleasant feelings and the mind's going to then develop more craving because of it. And that's going to lead to continued discontentedness. Because if you cling or hold on or crave any of these desirable conditions, then it's only a matter of time before those things change. You're not going to be able to permanently have gain. You're not going to permanently be able to have fame. You're not going to permanently have praise. You're not going to permanently have pleasure. So when you experience loss, shame, blame, and pain, if you allow the mind to experience excitement with these desirable conditions, then when those things change, then you're going to experience painful feelings when you experience the other side of this. So you should reside in the middle where as the mind experiences any of these things, you're just unaffected by it. You've probably been aware of people who have been very famous like early in their life or at some point during their life And then their fame wanes and some of those people end up committing suicide and killing themselves because their mind is holding on and craving the fame so much and working so hard to get back to it once it fades that they can't get back to that fame and therefore the mind becomes highly discontent and they don't understand that it's their own craving that's producing that and there ends up being a death because of suicide. So holding on to any of these things can cause massive amounts of discontentedness in your mind. Likewise, if you had a certain income or a certain salary, a certain gain, and your salary goes up to a certain level, and then maybe over time your skills aren't as vibrant, maybe they're not as desirable, maybe the economy changes and your salary goes down. Well, if you get so used to this gain and this high salary, and then you're making less money, your mind can be very discontent because of that. And if you don't recognize the pleasant feelings that are arising based on these desirable things, if you don't recognize with mindfulness, awareness of mind, that that's happening and cut it off and let it go, then at some point those things are going to change and you'll only experience painful feelings when these undesirable conditions come into your life. So the Buddha is advising here in his teaching, not to allow the mind to be affected by any of these conditions what questions do you guys have here
3: well would you say that the the reason the cause that makes the mind experience discontentedness is that it is basing its happiness on conditioned objects so if the mind is basing its happiness on permanent things, what the mind experience discontentedness?
1: There's nothing that the mind can base its happiness on that is permanent. Because if it's basing it on something, that something, that is a conditioned object, it's going to change. There really isn't many things in the world that are permanent. Enlightenment is permanent and the natural laws of existence are permanent. Anything that's unconditioned is going to be permanent. So unconditioned love is permanent. If you can love someone without conditions, love can be permanent, right? This is where some people, they might have had a horrible relationship with somebody, ended up breaking up, but at the end of the relationship, they still love that person. True love we're not talking about attachment. If you love without conditions, you can actually still love this person, but it can get pretty murky for the unenlightened mind because it might be craving, desire, attachment, but you can have unconditional love that's permanent. But at that point, you're not basing your happiness on that unconditioned love, or you're not basing your happiness on anything unconditioned. If you're basing your happiness on something That happiness is conditioned on something. So it's conditional feeling. So it's not possible to base your happiness on something that is unconditional. Just the fact that you're basing your happiness on something, that something is the condition. And it's always going to be temporary, it's always going to fade. And that means it's always going to produce painful feelings.
3: Yeah, that's clear.
1: Thanks, Mm -hmm. teacher. You're welcome. Any other questions on this chapter? Not seeing any question for this one. All right. Very short one, but a very powerful one there.
3: Well, uh, the next Vraturi is uh, Nick.
6: Demons with fruit the result in great accomplishment power. Having cultivated for seven years a mind of loving kindness, for seven eons of contraction and expansion, I did not return to this world. Whenever the eon contracted, I reached the plane of streaming radiance. And when the eon expanded, I arose in an empty heavenly mansion. And there I was, Brahma, God, the great Brahma, the unvanquished victor, the all-knowing, the all-powerful. 36 times I was Saka, ruler of the heavenly beings. And many hundreds of times I was a wheel turning monarch righteous a king of righteousness conqueror of the four regions of the earth maintaining stability in the land and possession of the seven treasures what need is there to speak of mere local kingship it occurred to me monks to wonder of what kind deed of mine is this the fruit of what deeds ripening am i now of such great accomplishment and power. And then it occurred to me, it is the fruit of three kinds of deeds of mine, the ripening of three kinds of deeds, that I am now of such great accomplishment and power, deeds of giving, of mastery of the mind, and of refraining. All right, thanks,
1: Nick. So here the Buddha is talking about some of his previous lives. There's times where he goes into even more detail than this. But here he's talking about some of the beneficial lives that he's had in the past. He talks about lots of animals that he's been at different times too. So he's talking about having cultivated his mind with loving kindness. talks about not even being reborn for seven eons. And when he talks about an eon, he talks about it as just an undistinguishable amount of time. So seven of those... As the world went through contraction and expansion, he didn't have rebirth. And he then talks about being reborn in these various beings. And then he's like, okay, so what does it really matter to be, you know, a king, a local king in this region, essentially, because that's what he gave up. He gave up being a king where when his mind understood that he had already been these other beings in the past, you know, what does he really care about being a king right now in this life? He's given that up. And then he contemplated and, and reflected, you know, what is it that brought me all of this good fortune that I've had these very beneficial rebirths to the point where now he was a Buddha and with this great wisdom? And he reflects on three specific deeds that allowed him to accomplish all those previous past births that were beneficial and his current birth, his last birth as a Buddha. And he says it's these three things, the action or the deed of giving, essentially practicing generosity, the mastery of the mind, which is essentially mental discipline and being able to control the mind, and of refraining, being able to pull the mind back and refrain from indulging in things like sensual desires. I explain each one of these in the explanation, helping you to see what he's referring to as giving, mastery of the mind, and refraining. But these are the three things that he says, okay, these are what leads to very beneficial outcomes and beneficial rebirths and ultimately him becoming a Buddha, is that he practiced generosity, he had practiced this mental discipline or control of the mind, and restraining the mind from such things as killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, lying, ingesting substances that cause heedlessness, while practicing wholesome moral conduct. And remember that this practice is about relinquishment or renunciation, giving up, letting go. But in doing so, the mind has to be controlled. It has to be restrained from unwholesomeness. So that's what we're doing as part of this practice. While we might be giving up killing, we might be giving up stealing or sexual misconduct or lying or substances that cause heedlessness, what you're gaining over here is that focus, that concentration, that calmness, that peacefulness, that wisdom, that clarity of mind, the contentedness where the mind doesn't experience any discontentedness. You're gaining this joy, this permanent joy. So oftentimes people will sometimes focus on this refraining or restraining the mind as if you're giving up a lot of things, but you also have to look at what you're gaining as well. And there's much more joy and all these things that you're gaining there's much more benefits and all these things that you're gaining than what you're giving up so that's what he's talking about here questions on this chapter
3: well this mind bring this teaching brings to the mind the idea that the buddha was clearly able to remember was detailed uh, about his previous existences in the different realms so that Everything he shared about the cycle of rebirth was fully the the truth. Every, Every single word that came out of his mouth since he attained enlightenment was really the truth.
1: Right he would have never lied, he would have only talked about experiences that he had, so if he wouldn't have experienced these things, then he wouldn't have discussed them he wouldn't have talked about them so he only would have ever said the truth because he says in other parts of his teachings that even when he tells a joke he doesn't tell a lie so if he's teaching something like this, this is indeed what he experienced and what he encountered as part of his awakening, having remembered these previous births. I think it's also important here to note that whenever you see the Buddha talking about Brahma, and particularly the great Brahma, that this is what we refer to today as God. And that's why I put God in parentheses. Just like in Muslim teachings, they refer to God as Allah. During the lifetime of the Buddha, the people in that region of the world referred to God as Brahma or the great Brahma. And they actually believed in multiple gods during his lifetime. But there was this one God, Brahma, the great Brahma, which was like the God of all gods. So whenever you see Brahma, I will put in parentheses God because that's how they referred to God during the Buddha's lifetime as Brahma, much like Muslims refer to him as Allah.
3: Yes, thanks, teacher. No more questions for
1: this chapter. All right, let's move on to the next one, chapter 55. Yes, Uh,
3: the next volunteer is uh, Miranda.
4: An unsurpassed field of merit for the world. Monks, these eight persons are worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of reverential salutation, an unsurpassed field of merit for the world. What eight? The stream enterer, the one practicing for realization of the fruit of stream entry. The once returner, the one practicing for realization of the fruit of once returning. The non returner, the one practicing for realization of the fruit of non returning. The Arahant, the one practicing for realization of the fruit of Arahantship. These eight persons, monks, are worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality worthy of offerings, worthy of reverential salutation, and unsurpassed field of merit for the world. The four practicing the way and the four established in the fruit, this is the upright community, composed in wisdom and virtuous behavior, moral conduct. For people intent on sacrifice for living beings seeking merit, making merit that ripens in the acquisitions, what is given to the community bears great fruit.
1: All right, thanks, Miranda so the buddhist here is talking about you know who are the individuals that we should make offerings to and we should look to make offerings to because during the lifetime of the buddha the community of practitioners just became larger and larger and larger you know enormous it actually became countless enlightened beings by the time that he died and then afterwards so when the Buddha talked about making offerings, he always talked about making offerings to virtuous individuals, virtuous ordained practitioners. And then he describes what a virtuous individual is. And here's one place where he's describing that. And he talks about eight different individuals. And he talks about one practicing to become a stream enter, right? And one who actually has realized become a stream enter those are two individuals so you might think of someone who's maybe practicing and actively working towards attaining the fruit of stream entry whereas if there was an ordained practitioner or a practitioner or a teacher who is just lackadaisical kind of complacent maybe they're living at a temple maybe they're kind of teaching but they're not really putting forth effort to really attain stream entry the Buddha saying, you know, that's not a virtuous person who's really worthy of gifts, but someone who's really on top of their practice, actively working towards stream entry. This is someone who he's saying, okay, they're worthy of gifts. And then, of course, somebody who is a stream enter, right? And then from there, he talks about someone who's practicing for the realization of once returner, again, actively working towards that and an actual once returner themselves. And then the same thing with non-returner, the same thing for Arahant. So there's two different types of people in each individual stage of enlightenment. And that's why he calls this the four practicing the way, so the way leading to these four stages of enlightenment, and the four established in the fruit who have actually attained one of the four stages of enlightenment through eliminating the ten fetters, the first three, and then so on from there, as I've taught in what are the four stages of enlightenment moving all the way to arahanship where they've eliminated all ten and he always refers to this group of individuals as the upright community you might also see the Aryan Sangha the Aryan Sangha are the people who have attained one of the four stages of enlightenment as well as those who are ordained male or female practitioners this is the upright community the straight community, those practicing the wholesome ways, composed in wisdom and virtuous behavior. For people intent on sacrifice, for living beings seeking merit. So if you're looking to build merit and create merit, which is a unique type of wholesome karma, the Buddha is saying, okay, make offerings to these type of people. And the reason why he's sharing to make offerings to these type of people and that it bears great fruit is that having people that are practicing towards one of the four stages of enlightenment or who have attained one of the four stages of enlightenment, this creates a lot of wholesomeness in the community. So by making offerings to virtuous people who are practicing towards the attainment or have attained one of these four stages, then those people are gonna be practicing in your community and you'll be in a perfect position to be able to learn from them in order to cultivate your own life practice, develop your own mind. Where if offerings aren't made to these wholesome people that are part of this upright community, then they're going to need to go somewhere else. And this community that's not willing to make offerings to people who are in this upright community, then they're not going to benefit from that. So the merit or the wholesome gamma that is being generated by making offerings to these eight individuals, the merit or the result or the effect of making these offerings is that those teachings are now going to be in your community because those people are going to reside comfortably and at ease in your community. Therefore, by making offerings to them regularly, it's going to help the people who are in that community looking to learn and practice in a way to attain that same level of insight and wisdom and development of the mind. Questions on this particular chapter?
3: No question for this one, no teacher.
1: Okay. Move to chapter 56.
3: Yes. Um, this one is for Manal. People who generate
5: much merit, wholesome karma Monks, whenever virtuous monastics come to a home, the people there generate much merit, wholesome fama on five grounds. Quote 5, 1, when people see virtuous monastics come to their home and they arouse hearts of confidence towards, toward them on that occasion that family is practicing the way of conducive, practicing the way conducive to heaven, 2, when people rise, pay homage, respect, and offer a seat to virtuous monastics who come to their home, on that occasion that family is practicing the way conducive to birth in high families. Three, when people remove the stain of selfishness towards virtuous monastics who come to their home, on that occasion that family is practicing the way conducive to great influence. Four, when, according to their means, people share what they have with virtuous monastics who come to their home, on that occasion that family is practicing the way conducive to great wealth. Five, when people question virtuous monastics who come to their home, make inquiries about the teachings, and listen to the teachings on that occasion that family is practicing the way conducive to great wisdom monks whenever virtuous monastics come to a home the people there generate much merit wholesome karma on these five grounds
1: great thank you Manal. so here the buddha is talking about what attributes are household practitioners going to be practicing and what is going to lead to and Again, remember when he's talking here about practicing the way conducive to heaven, all of these things that he's talking about is a way to practice conducive to attaining enlightenment in this life as well. So if virtuous monastics or people who are sharing these teachings with you come to your home, meaning you've invited them to your home because they're only going to come to your home if you actually invite them to your home then they arouse hearts of confidence towards them, having confidence, observing this wholesome, virtuous moral conduct, then having confidence in them that they're practicing well. Essentially, they've been invited to come to the home. When people rise up, paying respect. So when people who are virtuous, monastics, come to your home because you've invited them there, essentially stand up and greet them. Rather than being lackadaisical and like, oh, welcome, glad you're here, come on in, right? Like the Buddha is saying, you know, show respect to these people because you're going to gain benefit from having these virtuous monastics in your home. Removing the stain of selfishness, You know, not holding on to things like money or resources or other things that are part of your life by holding on to it really, really tightly and having that stain of selfishness. If virtuous monastics come to your home or you're in the presence of people who are conducting themselves in virtuous ways, the Buddha is saying, you know, don't be selfish, you know, share. We should be generous with all beings. But he's particularly saying, OK, you know, remove this stain of selfishness toward virtuous monastics, because that's only going to Help you in this life when you do that. Because people who are very virtuous and who have either attained enlightenment an and are close to it, they're already experiencing that peaceful mind. The only reason why you might be coming in contact with them is for your own benefit. So it's to your benefit to practice these things. And he talks about what is he talking about here? According to their means, people share what they have. That's practicing generosity. And then the last one, which I mentioned, he tends to make the most important is ask them questions, right? Don't just sit around, chit chat all the time. If you're in the presence of people who are practicing these teachings really well, ask them questions, make inquiries, and listen, because that's what's going to lead to your wisdom. And that's what's going to antidote all this discontentedness in this whole cycle of rebirth is to antidote that ignorance you need wisdom. So it's important to ask questions and get insight into the teachings so that you can then gain this wisdom. And the Buddha is saying, okay, this is what leads to producing great merit or wholesome karma, because your decision to do this is going to then lead to your benefit. And it's also important that you keep in mind when he's sharing this one, that in a previous chapter that we studied, I believe it was in volume two where he talks about the order of wealth or wealth that's gone to great use. So while he's sharing this one here in this particular situation, it's important that you don't look at it as isolated teachings, that he's just saying, okay, do all these great things for virtuous monastics. If you remember back to when he talks about using wealth in good ways, he talks about making sure you're content and peaceful, and that you've attended to all your necessities and your wife and your children or your life partner, your employees. He talks about that as being first. Then he talks about your relatives. He talks about, you know, essentially kings. And then eventually the very last person that he talks about sharing offerings with is him in virtuous monastics. So if you take that one and connect it to this one, you understand that he's not just saying here, okay, give everything you've got to these virtuous monastics. He's saying, okay, this is the way you practice in order to get to great wisdom is invite these virtuous monastics to your home and be in their presence, ask them lots of questions. But then in terms of offerings to produce merit, he talks about ensuring that you're whole and the people close to you are whole first before you actually ultimately end up being able to make offerings to virtuous monastics. What questions do you guys have on this chapter?
3: not seeing any question for this one, teacher.
1: All right, let's move on to the next one, which is chapter 57.
6: Yes, let's go to Nick for this chapter. Adjusted to a balanced pitch. Tell me, Sona, in the past when you lived at home, weren't you skilled at the loop? Stringed instrument? Yes, venerable sir. What do you think, Sona? When its strings were too tight, was your loop well-tuned and easy to play? No, venerable sir. When its strings were too loose, was your lute well tuned and easy to play? No, venerable sir. But Sona, when its strings were neither too tight nor too loose, but adjusted to a balanced pitch, was your lute well tuned and easy to play? Yes, venerable sir. So too, Sona, if energy is aroused too forcefully, this leads to restlessness. And if energy is too soft, this leads to complacency. Therefore, Sona, be determined on a balance of energy, spiritual faculties, and take up achieving evenness of the object there. Yes, Venerable Sir, the Venerable Sona replied.
1: Okay, the Venerable Sona is actually a female ordained practitioner who at one time used to play this instrument at home as a household practitioner prior to ordaining, and this is where we start getting some insight into the Buddhist teachings about the middle way. He talks about the middle way being the Eightfold Path, and the Eightfold Path is the middle way. It's the path to enlightenment. But here you can see that analogy where he's talking about this instrument that has strings You might think of it as a guitar nowadays, but of course, back then, it wasn't a guitar. It was a different instrument. But similarly, if a guitar strings are tuned too tight, it's not going to play beautiful music. Or if they're too loose, it's not going to play beautiful music. It's only when they're tuned perfectly to the middle that this instrument will play beautiful music. And the mind is exactly the same way. That if it's too tight, meaning that you've aroused energy too forcefully then the mind's going to be restless or overactive or anxiety, right? That's what we experience. Or if there's too soft of energy, then the mind's going to be sluggish or complacent. So the Buddha is saying here, be sure to tune it to a balanced pitch and that it's perfectly in the middle because by doing so, that's where you'll actually experience the optimal performance of the mind. Questions on this chapter?
3: Well so it seems that uh, even energy as one of the seven factors of enlightenment should be also practiced uh, in the middle way so uh, is there a middle way for practicing mindfulness uh, or it's always beneficial to practice
1: mindfulness it's always beneficial to practice mindfulness and there's a middle way to practice mindfulness So both of those things are actually true, Bassem, because if you hold on to mindfulness too much and you're just constantly, constantly obsessive about practicing awareness of mind, you're holding it too tight. The string's too tight. It's going to lead to unwholesome results. But also if it's too loose and you're kind of lackadaisical about it and complacent about practicing mindfulness or awareness of mind, that's going to lead to unwholesome results too. So you've got to find that Middle way where you're aware of what's going on in the mind, but you can do that at ease and you're not obsessed about it, but you're also not complacent about it as well. So it's always useful to be practicing mindfulness all the time, all your waking hours. You should always be aware of what's in the mind.
3: Yes, thanks. One more question for this one.
1: All right, chapter 58.
3: Yes, let's go to Maran for this chapter
5: The Pleasure of Sleep. What do you think, monks? Have you ever seen or heard that a head anointed Katia King, while exercising rule all his life, is pleasing and agreeable to the country if he spends as much time as he wants, yielding to the pleasure of rest, the pleasure of inactivity, the pleasure of sleep? No, Venerable Sir, good monks, I too have never seen or heard such a thing. What do you think, monks? Have you ever seen or heard that a royal official a favourite son, a general, a village headman, a club master, while exercising leadership over the club all his life is pleasing and agreeable to the club if he spends as much time as he wants, yielding to the pleasure of rest, the pleasure of inactivity, the pleasure of sleep. No venerable sir. Good monks, I too have never seen or heard of such a thing. Monks, what do you think? Suppose there is an ascetic or Brahmin who spends as much time as he wants yielding to the pleasure of rest, the pleasure of inactivity, the pleasure of sleep, one who does not guard the doors of the sense basis, who is immoderate in eating and is not intent on wakefulness, who lacks insight into wholesome qualities, who does not reside intent on the effort to develop the aids to enlightenment in the earlier and later phases of the night. Have you ever seen or heard that such a one, with the destruction of the taints, has realized for himself with direct knowledge, experience, in this very life, the taintless liberation of mind, liberation by wisdom, and having entered upon it, resides in it? No, Venerable Sir. Good monks, I too have never seen or heard such a thing. Therefore, monks, you should train yourselves thus. You will guard the doors of the sense spaces, be moderate in eating, and will be intent on wakefulness. You will have wisdom into wholesome qualities and will reside in the effort to develop the aids to enlightenment in the earlier and later phases of the night. Thus, monks, should you train yourselves?
1: Okay, perfect. Thank you, Manal. So, here the Buddha is talking essentially about complacency. And if someone were to take all this pleasure in rest and inactivity and pleasure of sleep, how could they actually produce any beneficial results in their life? He starts out talking about this Katya king. The Katyas were a group of people who were very well respected and regarded as operating and conducting themselves in wholesome ways and having a very flourishing and prosperous community. So the Buddha is saying, hey, have you ever heard this great, wonderful king of these great, amazing people that has been taking all this pleasure and rest and inactivity and sleep? And of course, no, we haven't heard of such a thing. Because in order for that community of people to be so prosperous and successful, the king would have to be active and working and applying effort and energy to be able to help the people get to that prosperous position. And then he goes through these other things like royal official, a favorite son, a general village headman, club master, All of these people, essentially people in leadership positions or even just an average person like a favorite son, all of these people, in order to be successful in life, we can't just be lackadaisical and complacent, taking all this pleasure in rest, pleasure in inactivity, and pleasure in sleep. But also we can't just constantly be go, 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 go all the time. This relates back to the previous chapter where we need to practice the middle way. So we need to find time to take rest be inactive and have some sleep. But taking pleasure and dwelling in that stuff is what really is going to lead to somebody's lack of productivity if they just allow the mind to become complacent and not actually take active steps to improve. So the Buddha ultimately gets to talking about people who are on the path to enlightenment, aesthetics and Brahmin and others saying, you know, have you ever heard of anybody who's essentially attained enlightenment, who's been taking so much pleasure in this rest and inactivity and in sleep well of course the students of the buddha nor the buddha had heard of anybody that had ever attained enlightenment without practicing this enlightenment factor of energy where there's this willingness to do something this motivation this enthusiasm complacency is one of the hindrances to enlightenment so if the mind ever becomes complacent, if you observe that with mindfulness, you need to immediately put steps in place, immediately move the mind out of that complacency. Don't allow it to sit there where it's not interested in meditating. It's not interested in reading. It's not interested in going to classes. Unwholesome thoughts are coming up in the mind and the mind isn't interested in cutting them off and letting them go. So if you went a week or two without reading, you're taking a break and you know that that's what you're doing and then you decide, you know, three or four weeks down the road to start engaging in your studies again, okay, you know that you're actively taking a break because maybe you're busy in other things in your life and you know that you're going to be moving right back into becoming active with the teachings. But if you allow that mind to dwell there and become complacent, that's where the real danger sets in because if the mind becomes complacent on this path and you start tolerating these unwholesome thoughts that are arising in the mind or you start tolerating discontentedness and you start lacking to make wise decisions about wholesome friends or wholesome companions or things like this, then you're going to get yourself into more and more challenges because you're not actively practicing. So you need to be active in your practice at all times in order to get to enlightenment. It's essentially what the Buddha is talking about. And then he talks about the things that one should be active in, which is guarding the doorways to the sense bases. So these six senses where he talks about guarding them and protecting your contentedness, ensuring that the mind isn't longing through these six sense bases. Be moderate in your eating. Don't just indulge in constant eating, but be moderate. You know, in the middle, don't eat an enormous amount, but also don't eat very little either. That wouldn't be good for the body. Being intent on wakefulness, awakening the mind, that that's what you're going towards. Even if you, like I mentioned, take a break from investigating the teachings for a while, but know that you're going to get back to it and make sure that that's what you do. And then make sure there's wisdom into wholesome qualities to cultivate residing intent on the effort to develop the aids to enlightenment. The aids to enlightenment are all the teachings like the seven factors of enlightenment, understanding the 10 fetters and how to eliminate those, understanding all the individual teachings that it takes to get to enlightenment. And that's what would ultimately lead to enlightenment. This complacency isn't going to lead to enlightenment. It's just going to lead to further complacency and the deterioration of the mind what questions do you guys have on this chapter
3: well talking about the uh, sense door basis uh, would you agree that all 100% of discontentedness that is experienced in the mind starts in the uh, um, uh, sense door basis
1: if you understand dependent origination you might not say that it starts there because it really starts with ignorance the unknowing of true reality right but in this whole dependent origination the sixth sense basis is a major step or a major aspect of what arises discontentedness in the four noble truths we talk very simply about craving desire attachment is what leads to discontentedness. And that's what you need to hear when you first start learning in order to make that breakthrough, to observe that it's your own mind causing its discontentedness, that mental longing with a strong eagerness. But the more you study and the more that you understand, particularly dependent origination, which is the ultimate truth of the Buddhist teachings, then you understand that it really all starts with ignorance and then it goes to volitional formations, consciousness, and so forth and so on. Eventually getting to the sixth sense basis and craving through the sixth sense basis is what essentially creates the discontentedness in the mind. But we describe it in a kind of fine way when we talk about the central desire and guarding the six doorways of discontentedness. But in order to understand that part of it, you'd have to understand the wisdom and that's what we're eradicating that ignorance. So that's where it really starts. If you're talking about a sequence of events, Bassem, but if you look at it on a real macro level, a really fine level, then yes, I agree with what you're saying is that by guarding those six doorways to discontentedness, that's going to be what eradicates discontentedness from the mind because all discontentedness is going to come in through the six doorways. And if you train the mind and restrain it through those six doorways, those six sense bases, and you train the mind to not have craving through those, then you can make an end to discontentedness because all discontentedness is gonna come through those six doorways.
3: Thanks, the teacher. No more question for
1: this one. All right, let's move to chapter
6: 59.
3: Yes.
6: Uh, The next volunteer is uh, Mick. One who is constantly dedicated. But monks, if a central thought, thought of ill will or a thought of harming arises in a monk while walking, and he does not tolerate it but abandons it, dispels it, terminates it, and obliterates it, then that monk is said to be dedicated and to have moral concern of wrongdoing. He is constantly and continuously energetic and determined while walking. If a sensual thought, a thought of ill will, or a thought of harming arises in a monk while standing, and he does not tolerate it, but abandons it, dispels it, terminates it, and obliterates it, then that monk is said to be dedicated and to have moral concern of wrongdoing. He is constantly and continuously energetic and determined while standing. If a sensual thought, a thought of ill will or a thought of harming arises in a monk while sitting and he does not tolerate it but abandons it, dispels it, terminates it and obliterates it, then that monk is said to be dedicated and to have moral concern of wrongdoing. He is constantly and continuously energetic And determined while sitting if a sensual thought a thought of ill will or a thought of harming arises in a monk while wakefully lying down and he does not tolerate it but abandons it dispels it terminates it and obliterates it then that monk is said to be dedicated and to have moral concern of wrongdoing he is constantly and continuously energetic and determined while wakefully lying down
1: all right thanks nick so here the buddha is actually combining a couple of steps along the eightfold path he's not actually calling out the eightfold path and explaining to you that's what he's doing but if you understand the eightfold path then you understand that that's what he's doing here because when he's talking about Central thought, ill will, and harming right away, you should be thinking about right intention because right intention is all about renunciation or relinquishment, letting go. What are you letting go of? Central thought. You're letting go of a lot of other things too in this practice, but that's the main thing that you're letting go of those central desires. Practicing the intention of non ill will or goodwill, and also practicing harmlessness. So here he's kind of calling out right intention. Without saying right intention, he's actually talking about the detail of right intention. When he's talking about not tolerating it, right, and abandoning it, he dispels it, terminates it, obliterates it. This is what he's talking about in terms of right effort. Because if you remember right effort, it's all about eliminating unwholesome qualities and arising wholesome qualities, So applying right effort means you're not going to tolerate, you're not going to allow any of these central thoughts, thoughts of ill will or thoughts of harming to arise. And as soon as you do, as soon as you observe those, you're going to cut them off and let them go applying right effort. So it takes right mindfulness in order for you to be able to accomplish this. You have to have awareness of mind to be aware of an arising central thought, the thought of ill will Or the thought of harming and not be complacent in that. And whether you're walking, standing, sitting, or lying, you observe the mind with right mindfulness. And then you cut off and let go of any unwholesome mental qualities that are arising. And what this ultimately produces is it produces right concentration or singleness of mind, being able to focus on these things. So even when the mind is tired, and you're kind of falling asleep, you're halfway between awake and falling asleep, if you're noticing a central thought or thought of ill will or thought of harming comes into the mind, you got to cut it off and let it go. You got to purify that mind. And it's a real challenge as you're doing this to have that level of energy to be able to do that. But the wonderful thing is, is that the more and more that you do that, Ultimately, when the mind moves to this enlightened mental state, you don't have to do that anymore. But just to be able to get to enlightenment, you do have to be diligent. You have to be dedicated. You have to be determined that any little central thought, any little thought of ill will, any thought of harming, and we can even expand this even further, any kind of conceit or arrogance, or anytime you see the personal existence view arise, or any you have any of these fetters, any of these pollutions that arise in the mind, you should not tolerate them. You should abandon them, dispel them, terminate them, obliterate them. Because as you apply right effort, cut them off and let them go, you're purifying the mind and they'll be less likely to come back into the mind. I used this analogy a long time ago, whereas if you've got a bucket of water and somebody's coming around, in your village and putting poison in your water, if you just allow that to keep happening and the water keeps getting poisoned, that person will keep coming around and putting poison in your water. But if as soon as you see that person peek their face around a tree and you slap a lid on top of your bucket of water protecting your pure bucket of water, eventually you do that a few times and that person's gonna realize they can't poison your water anymore and they're gonna stop trying. So it's the same thing as when these central thoughts or these thoughts of ill will, these thoughts of harming and all these other defilements start arising, if you can cut them off and let them go and keep doing that over and over, eventually they won't come back into the mind because you've obliterated them. You haven't tolerated them. You've terminated them and they will no longer arise in the mind. And that's where the mind becomes enlightened, where it's just so effortless That you're able to practice you don't have to have this extreme amount of effort to be able to to practice all the time but in order to get there as you're building up your practice finding that middle way you've got to find that middle way where you're diligent you're dedicated and you're determined you're not holding it too tight you're not holding it too loose but you're actively working to purify the mind and as you do cutting off things that are arising that are unwholesome arising the wholesome and then eventually the mind gets more and more purified and you won't need to do that because it's just always having wholesome thoughts because those unwholesome thoughts never arise in the mind anymore what questions do you guys have on this chapter
3: well do you agree that it is required it is needed to be constantly dedicated for training the mind to attain enlightenment Even for one who was a stream enterer or a once returner in the previous life?
1: Absolutely. Because even if you were a stream enterer or a once returner in a previous life, when you're born into that next life, you still have all the same 10 fetters. You still have the three poisons. You still have to develop your practice. It'll be easier for you because you've done that previous work in previous lives, but you still have to do all that work. So... You are going to remain diligent, even when the mind's enlightened. This is why I suggest people, even when you observe, you haven't had any discontentness for a year, two, three, four, five, and you pretty much know the mind's enlightened. You should never convince yourself that the mind is enlightened, because if you haven't had discontentness for three months or four months or maybe six months, and you're like, oh, wow, I'm so enlightened. Look at this. No discontentness for four months or six months. That's when that arrogance arises, that conceit, and then boom, here comes some discontentedness and it's going to affect the mind. So if you never convince the mind that you're enlightened, you're not going around telling anyone that you believe you're enlightened, you're not professing you're enlightened and all these other things, then you can just always be on top of your practice. So if you're six months, nine months, a year into this where you experience complete contentedness for that year... And then some discontentedness happens to slip into the mind. If you remain diligent and dedicated, you can cut it off and stay on top of it right away. And then boom, you're right back to peacefulness again. So by convincing the mind that you're actually enlightened or that you shouldn't be diligent or you shouldn't be dedicated, you're just kind of inviting some discontentedness into the mind because you're now becoming complacent. And if you're complacent, then the mind's not enlightened because you're not practicing that enlightenment factor of energy. So you've got to find that middle way and just stay there in that groove.
3: Thanks, teacher. Let's go to Miranda for chapter 16. All right. One who is constantly
4: complacent. Monks, if a sensual thought, a thought of ill will, or a thought of harming arises in a monk while walking, and he tolerates it, does not abandon it, dispel it, terminate it, and obliterate it, then that monk is said to be lacking of effort and moral concern for wrongdoing. He is constantly and continuously complacent and lacking in energy while walking. If a sensual thought, a thought of ill will, or a thought of harming arises in a monk while standing, and he tolerates it, does not abandon it, dispel it, terminate it, and obliterate it, then that monk is said to be lacking of effort and moral concern of wrongdoing. He is constantly and continuously complacent and lacking in energy while standing. If a sensual thought, a thought of ill will, or a thought of harming arises in a monk while sitting, and he tolerates it, does not abandon it, dispel it, terminate it, and obliterate it, then that monk is said to be lacking of effort and moral concern of wrongdoing. He is constantly and continuously complacent and lacking in energy while sitting if a sensual thought a thought of ill will or a thought of harming arises in a monk while wakefully lying down and he tolerates it does not abandon it dispel it terminate it and obliterate it then that monk is said to be lacking of effort and moral concern of wrongdoing he is constantly and continuously complacent and lacking in energy while wakefully lying down
1: all right. Thank you, Miranda. So this is just the opposite of the one we just discussed being diligent. The Buddha is talking just the opposite of complacency. And just like I mentioned in the previous chapter, while the Buddha here is talking about central thought, thoughts of ill will, and thoughts of harming, you should expand this out to all unwholesome mental states. If an individual, if a practitioner is tolerating not interested in abandoning, dispelling, terminating, or obliterating any unwholesome quality. We can talk about anger. We can talk about the self when it arises. We can talk about conceit or arrogance, pride. We can talk about any of these unwholesome qualities, jealousy, resentment, all these things that arise in the mind. If someone tolerates that, it's just sitting there rumiating and polluting the mind. So if somebody does that, the Buddha is saying, okay, they're lacking effort, right? And if they're lacking effort, they're lacking that energy as well. So they're not practicing right effort and they're not practicing the enlightenment factor of energy. Therefore, the mind is complacent and it's not going to move to this enlightened mental state. So wherever you see that unwholesomeness coming into the mind, whether you're driving down the road, whether you're walking the dog, whether you're just talking on the phone to somebody and you get jealous of what they say, or you feel resentment from five or 10, 20 years ago, something that happened that comes into the mind, wherever you observe any of these unwholesome states or any of these unwholesome thoughts, you just cut it off and let it go. And it gets easier and easier when you're doing that breathing mindfulness meditation, because you're gonna have more mindfulness, you're gonna have a more awareness of what's happening in the mind. And because you're cutting off the thoughts and meditation and coming back to the breath, back to the breath, back to the breath, it gets easier and easier for you to observe these unwholesome qualities that arise or these unwholesome thoughts. And it gets easier and easier for you to let them go and move past it and just stay in the middle. And then as you do that more and more, that's what I mentioned, that eventually it doesn't require any effort or any energy because the mind just stays in that groove all the time. It's just always peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because you've removed all of these conditions. When this condition of central thought or this condition of ill will or this condition of harming, you know, here we're talking about them as thoughts, but this is all pollution, these defilements, these taints, these ten fetters, as they're polluting the mind, if we tolerate them, then we're just going to experience more and more of that. So by cutting it off and letting it go, taking the effort and energy to do that, that's where you purify the mind, you cleanse the mind of all of these impurities. And then when the mind is pure, then you're no longer needing to do any of this because there is never a central thought that arises. There's never a thought of ill will, there's never a thought of harming. There's never jealousy, there's never boredom, there's never loneliness. There's never a thought of anything unwholesome. All arrogance and pride in the self has all been eradicated. So the mind can just be at ease because it's purified and you no longer needing to do all this work because you've already done the work. So that's what the Buddha is talking about here is not allowing the mind to become complacent and just staying on top of your practice. And it's that eightfold path that's going to guide you and helping you to understand what you should be doing on an ongoing basis to purify the mind and get to enlightenment questions on this chapter
3: many thanks teacher for your time and guidance. Uh, no more questions for today
1: all right well i will just thank you guys once again for choosing to learn and study the buddhist teachings now that we're in volume three we've just finished up chapters 51 through 60 so we're moving into chapter 61 through 70 we're more than halfway through this book, or actually we're, we're about to come on to being halfway through this book because this book has 124 chapters. So we're almost about halfway through it. So just continue to read like you do each week, read the Buddhist teachings, read the explanations. And I suggest, you know, just probably one or two chapters a day. You don't need to read an hour at a time because it's really hard to take in that content and sit with that and chew on it. It's like taking a small bite. It's easier to chew that small bite and digest it than if you take a big, huge bite. So just drip feed these teachings into the mind, reading one or two chapters a day. Think about that for 24 hours or so, and then read the next chapter too, because you're not just trying to plow through these books and through this learning, you're trying to gradually build up your practice. And you're not just believing what you're seeing, you're learning. And then once you learn through the reading, you're reflecting on that. And you're reflecting on that and thinking about it, moving it into practice. And then these classes are another opportunity for you to learn, reflect, and move these teachings into your practice. And then, of course, I'm publishing these each week in the Facebook group. So there, if you're reading them there, too, you're able to drip feed these teachings into the mind, gradually learning, gradually reflecting, and gradually practicing. Tomorrow in our group learning program, we're going to be in chapter three of volume one, which is enlightenment. What is enlightenment? I'll be sharing the teachings there. And if you would like to read before or after you can do that, or if you'd like to just attend the class, you're welcome to do that as well. And then next Wednesday, we're going to be in the third part of our four-part series on loving kindness. So I'll see you guys either tomorrow, Wednesday, or next Saturday. And until then, have a lovely rest of your day. We'll see you then.
2: Sawadee
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com.